This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Join me on this episode from Judas Priest, the one, the only, sole original member, Ian Hill. And of course, as always, on the phone is co-host Alan Niven. Good day, Alan. How are you? Upright and breathing. It's an achievement in my ears. Yes, and of course, during the interview with Ian Hill, we talk about the Firepower artwork, which was done by the same gentleman who did the artwork for my show, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn, and I have got him on the line as well. Uh, good day, Claudio. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks for having me. Yes, so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this out to both of you, but before we get talking about Judas Priest and Alan, uh, I know your, your bands in the past have toured with them. Um, and Alan, I'll start with you. Talk to me about the importance of a great visual and a great artwork for an album or for a t-shirt or just, just great artwork for music. Oh, good Lord. Um, well, first of all, maybe some of our listeners can remember things called record stores. And there used to be a good one on Sunset called Tower. And I'd go to Tower with the intent to buy this record or that record and check it out. But I'd get into the shelves and I'd be flicking through the shelves. And when your eye gets caught by some really cool artwork or imaginative artwork, you pull that record out and you look at it and you go, yeah, well, maybe we'll check this out. And then 20 minutes later, you've forgotten why you came there in the first place and you don't buy the records you intended but you have an armful of records with really cool artwork great artwork not just catches and stimulates the eye but great artwork also embodies the attitude and the soul of the music so when you've got somebody like our gentleman friend here claudio doing what he's doing that's a tremendous asset it really is. Now, Claudio, I can hear that you're packing up here because I know you've got a big gig tonight, but uh, just real quick. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, uh, it, it was as if somebody was moving a fridge back there, but it's okay. We'll survive. Uh, but real quick, uh, talk mm -hmm. to me about uh, hooking up with Judas Priest and then the concept for Firepower, because for me, uh, obviously, before I heard the music, I saw the artwork, you know, the different websites, whether it's Blabbermouth or Alternative Nation or whatever, they posted upcoming mm -hmm. art. And you just looked at it and you went, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm in. I, I'm very much in. So talk to me about the inspiration, but also how you got the gig. Because I know Ian Hill, during the interview, very complimentary. He loves you. I mean, just loves you. Oh, that's very nice of him. Well, actually, what you just said about the impact it had on you, that was exactly the the, the goal. That was uh, the intention. Um, the band were very... The, they were very clear uh, at the very beginning that they wanted something that would fit into the Jewish priest mythology, you know, this metal creatures, metal gods created by Rob, right? But they were very clear at the same time that they didn't want something that looked dated or nostalgic. They didn't want that. They wanted something that would fit their whole mythology, their, their whole uh, tradition, but also they wanted something that would look current and up to date and, and fresh, you know? So it was a, a very delicate balance to get there, you know, to get something that would look very Jesus priesty, but at the same time, it would, you know, fit any, you know, any uh, uh, promotion for, for nowadays, you know, for, 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 for this, for this day in metal. 
So, yep. so yeah, so that was a, so that was a challenge, but at the same time, I knew what I wanted to see on a Judas Priest cover. Right? I, I've been, I, I've been fantasizing with that for many years because I'm a fan too. So, uh, the cover came about after, uh, an, a, a, an endless exchange of messages with Richie Faulkner. He knew what he wanted to. So um, he sent me uh, a visual aid examples of what he thought the direction will be. And, uh, and then I took it from there. But Richie was a big part of it. Yeah, Richie was very much involved. And that's what people don't know. Now, I will, of course, tell folks to do check out Claudio Bergamin, B-E-R-G-A-M-I-N.com, ClaudioBergamin.com. Because the other thing is uh, that you have on there is um, a Bigfoot, right? A lot, lot of Bigfoot stuff. Yeah. yeah, that's a huge part of what I do too. You know, I'm I'm very much involved in the paranormal world. Yeah. Uh, so I do I do book covers for researchers, uh, guys guys from the Ancient Alien TV show. I work with David Childress. I work with uh, um, big fan. Uh, yeah, big a, fan, a, right, Alan? We we love that stuff, and and Claudio's the guy doing all the artwork for it. Awesome. Um, my wife and uh, stepson went to a uh, um, a contact in the desert at Palm Springs. Oh, I wanted to be there, but I couldn't go. <laughs> it was. They had an awesome time, but the lasting memory that they brought back was uh, there was a Q and A going, and uh, somebody stood up and said, "When is there going to be disclosure?" And the answer <laughs> from the panel was, "This is." disclosure that is great um just real quick since we're on artwork and i and i do want to get over to ian uh, and i'll throw this to claudio first and then alan what is the one album that you look back whether it's the 70s or 80s where you looked at the artwork and you said yeah that's it they got it right that's the perfect album cover um claudio what, what was the, the the album cover that you saw as a kid or as a teenager and you went oh f yeah that's awesome you mean in general or jewish priest in general, I mean, obviously, Judas Priest. The the answer is every single album. <laughs> well, to me, to me, the first one that really made an impact on me, and still is, one of my top five favorite album covers is Destroyer, by the great Ken Kelly, whom I I, I had the chance to meet in, in Miami in the the pre party for the Kiss Cruise, and it was wonderful, you know, and uh, we kind of had a little colleague chat, so. He's great. He's amazing. He, he does uh, the, the Manowar covers too. But Destroyer really made an impact on me. I mean, that's the way you do it. I mean, that's an album cover. You see, Alan, even Claudio loves Kiss. Uh, it's, it's incredible. Oh, you paid him. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> no. Claudio, make sure, make sure that the check clears. But, you know, he pays people <laughs> to say all this stuff. <laughs> no, I've been, I've, been, I've been a huge Kiss fan all my life. I mean, I'm a nerd. I read all the books. I'm, I've read all the Julian Julian Deal books and uh, right. and Chris Land and and everybody. I'm a Kiss nerd. Actually, we used to held up uh, Kiss trivia contests, and I won a couple. See, <laughs> see, and and awesome. Alan, what about you? What what's the the one album? Was it? Um, boy, was it, I don't know. I'm trying to think. Uh, what came out in the fifties? Um, Oh, careful now, there. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm sure. Other than an Elvis, an Elvis. No, what was a, a cover that really meant something to you? Because I mean, I know we've talked about all kinds of different bands. We've talked about, uh, you know, the, the well, Neil Claudio, 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 probably get where I'm coming from on this, and um, you, you know, I'm going to be 
fleet on my feet and avoid being asked about one, I'm going to say um, hypnosis. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> Great choice. When, yeah, the hypnosis covers were probably the ones that most consistently intrigued me. And mm-hmm. I found um, were opening up doors of my perception. Uh, well, hypnosis was a, a huge influence when, when I was in art school. And uh, Storm Thorgerson's work, uh, yep. he's a very, very captivating, very mysterious, surrealist. He has a little bit of Dali and then a little bit of Magritte. He's, uh, he was amazing. And, uh, and I actually have a book with him. And I went to one of his, his art shows in, uh, in, in London when he was still alive. Um, it was, he was great. He was amazing. Definitely a, a big influence. Did he sign your book for you? No, no, because oh. no, I, got the, I got the book recently. I just went to the show. Oh, he okay. wasn't there. He wasn't there. He was, oh. It was just his work, you know. But it was, it was mind-blowing to see the original pieces. It was great. Oh, I bet. But for me, that, that was consistently um, a WTF. What the fuck is that about? You know, his his artwork really stimulated curiosity and there were clever juxtapositions of circumstance and object. And, you know, you mentioned Dali. I think I think in a way he was better than Dali because there's something about Dali for me that's a little too weird, whereas (laughs) these were juxtapositions that made me go. Somebody's trying to tell me something here and something interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he also came from the advertising world. So he had yes. a very kind of a, a commercial visuals, if you know what I mean. He's yep. a, his, his theme was mysterious and intriguing, but his visuals, his style was very, very appealing, very commercial. Yes. 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 Very much very clean so. at times. Yeah. But uh, that would be my answer, guys. Hypnosis. Yeah. Hypnosis. I will just uh, go, of course, uh, with Kiss, but Kiss Love Gun, just because it's one of the first ones. Growing up, we had a lot of Beethoven's Fifth and ABBA records and just sort of this nondescript stuff going on. And then my brother borrowed Love Gun from somebody, and I saw that cover, and I went, oh, I want to hear what this is. And so it might not be the best cover ever, uh, but I mean, it's actually very good, but, but it, it just... It's the one that made me want to listen to those albums. So, uh, mm-hmm. and Claudia, I'll finish yeah. with this before we get over to Ian. Are you formally trained or are you just one of these guys that sat in the back of the classroom and, and sort of came up with these great designs and then somebody said, you should make a career out of that? <laughs> Both. Okay. <laughs> well, I was, I was the guy who was always drawing in, in class, getting, getting to the, direct, the, the principal's office because I, was, I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> But then when, when I finished high school, I went to art school. Uh, so I had proper training as an artist. And, um, but I, I didn't jump into the cover art right away. I worked in the advertising photography for a long time while I was living in Italy and then England. And, uh, and I, went, I just made a jump, went solo around 10 years ago, and I started doing this full time. Before, it was kind of a hobby that you know could pay could pay well but it was still a hobby but then i quit my my day job and i became a full commission artist wow well done well done because that that is hard work if you think being a rock star is hard because of all the spot being an artist i think is is right up there anyway uh, let's get over to ian hill 
Claudio, a huge, huge thank you for not only making my artwork, the Judas Priest artwork. Uh, hopefully, you will get to do the next new Judas Priest artwork as well. I certainly hope it for you. And, uh, well, me too. <laughs> yeah, because it's great. And uh, here we are, folks. Here is the one, the only, Ian Hill. We are speaking with uh, Judas Priest bassist Ian Hill. Uh, Ian, an absolute, absolute pleasure to talk to you. I saw you last uh, tour uh, with uh, what, Deep Purple and then also on a tour with Saxon and uh, Black Star Riders. You guys are just delivering the goods for, uh, no, well, pun intended, actually. <laughs> yeah, great one. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Great introduction. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Talk to me a little bit about what we're going to see on this tour, because like I just said, I saw you with Saxon and Blackstar. Uh, great combination that was. Then the Deep Purple, another great tour. Uh, this time it's Uriah Heep. Do do we change the set list at all? Is it is it just more of the Firepower tour? What are fans going to see uh, on this leg? Yeah, there's, there's going to be uh, wholesale changes to the set list, actually. Um, probably, I don't know, maybe seven, as many as nine, maybe changes, I'd have thought. Um, there'll be some new songs from, from Firepower that we didn't play on the last leg, or the last legs, I should say. Um, but we've also pulled some more songs from the uh, back catalogue that we haven't played for a long time. Um, and, of course, the fans' favourites will still be there as well. It's a nightmare trying to put it all together, <laughs> saving everything and changing around to new songs too, you know. But we've, we've managed to do it. Um, like I say, we've all been learning some, some very new songs. Um, that we haven't played, so you know, I mean, the production's changed as well, you know. So there'll be different effects and different uh, staging or whatever. So it'll be a fresh experience for everyone. Good. I, I, I'm still praying to hear parental guidance. I know I know it's an unpopular choice, but I love that song. Um, <laughs> just real quick, uh, you know, the, the band is still making new music. A lot of those, and don't take this as disparaging, but Heritage Acts, they sort of go, we've got our 15 greatest hits that we wrote 30 years ago. Come and see them. Have a good time. You guys don't do that. Talk to me about the importance of staying fresh and and having an album like Firepower because it's not just going through the motions. You're actually breaking new ground for the band. Um, so just talk to me about the importance of staying relevant. Well, that's exactly that, staying relevant. Um, with, with every album we've done right from day one, with each successive album, we've tried to make it different and try to improve it and get better as musicians and as a band, you know, and performers. And uh, and we're still doing that now, you know. And after 50 years, uh, or nearly 50 years, to have um, the highest chart position in in the states that we've ever had, you know, uh, proves the point, really. You know that we are, you know, we're still relevant um, in today's music, uh, you know, music scene, um, and we still have a lot to offer. And um, as long as the creative juices are flowing and, uh, and the material that's coming out is, is quality material, well, yeah, we're going to continue to do that as well, you know. Yeah, and, and good on you. Now, uh, talk to me about the imagery of the album cover, because uh, on this one, Claudio Bergman did the art. He also designed my logo for my show, so we, we share that in common. But oh, okay. uh, yeah, Cla Claudio's a great guy. So uh, talk to me about the importance, because over the years, uh, Priest has been a very visual band. You look at the artwork on Ram It Down, on Painkiller and Turbo, and all. always been very appealing to the eye. Uh, just talk to me a little bit about the importance of having a great album cover and great uh, artwork and, and visually, not just musically, but visually having something to say. It, it is. It's extremely important. I mean, 
uh, when, when I was young, you know, I mean, in the days of, you know, of records, you know, vinyl records, um, I've been into my local record store and, and bought albums, you know, on the strength of the album cover, because it gives you a visual idea of what's going to be on the album, basically, you know. Um, and with Firepower, we, we, uh, we decided to go a little bit different uh, this time around. Uh, Mark Wilkinson has been doing our stuff, and he's a brilliant artist, he really is. His attention to detail is, is phenomenal, really. And, and each one of his the album covers he's done and peripheral sort of artwork he does for other things as well, he's so detailed and so accurate, you know. Um, but we we wanted to go a little bit more in the face with this one. And um, I think Richard and Claudio from somewhere, and he suggested him. So um, we, we asked him to, to give, a, give his take on Firepower, and that's where he came up with as soon as we saw it, you know, we thought that's it. What a what a straight in the face, you know. It's a great album cover, really simple uh, and to the point. Uh, you know, aggressive. Everything that a heavy metal album uh, has to offer. It's absolutely stunning, and and not to pat myself on the back, but when he did my artwork, we we sort of used the flame and orange, and just just like yours. It's 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 great to see. Um, well, okay. Let me just ask you about this because you are. And, and not technically, but you are the sole remaining original member of the band starting in 1969. Talk to me about some of the changes over the years. You know, when you had those other vocalists and you finally got Rob to come in four or five years after the band form, what was it about Rob where you just went, okay, this is the voice. We tried these guys, but this is the voice. Um, just talk to me a little bit about Rob and, and first meeting him and first getting him in the band. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, our original vocalist, Al Atkins, um, where we got the name from, actually, we inherited the name. There was a band before us called Judas Priest, and uh, Alan was the, um, he was the vocalist of that band, and they, they split up, you know. And then Alan subsequently came and joined uh, Ken and John and myself, and um, couldn't think of a decent name for the band, so we called it Judas Priest. <laughs> Uh, and Alan stayed with us, he was with us for about three years, from 1972 to about uh, 73 when he left. Uh, he had a leave, we weren't earning a great deal of money, and his wife became pregnant. So he had to go out and get a job, you know, it was as simple as that. So um, I just happened to be out, uh, dating Rob's sister at the time. I mean, I, I didn't know Rob, I, I don't think I'd even met him at that point. And uh, Sue suggested, well, why didn't we give Rob a go. I mean, we've heard his name um, in the local, in the local, you know, Jungle Telegraph sort of thing. And um, so we went around to, to meet him at, uh, at his mum and dad's. And Ken and I were sitting down on the on the settee in the front room. And he came downstairs and he was hobbing harmonies to an elephant shell song. <laughs> and we thought, well, that's our guy, you know. <laughs> but, you know, we meeting him and... Um, you know, chatting in, we, we had exactly the same goals and the, the musical attitude was the same, or very, very similar. And uh, not long after that, we, we were, you know, rehearsing in, in a local rehearsal um, facility um, called Holy Joe's and um, started belting out a few tunes, you know. And it wasn't very long before we, we started to sound uh, really, really good. Um, Rob brought a drummer with him as well and John Hinch. He was playing in a band uh, with him, a band called Hiroshima, um, because uh, Chris Campbell, he left at the same time as uh, as Alan, you know. 
and uh, and then we went on from there. Um, got a record deal a couple of years after that. Uh, no, actually, it was about a year after that, um, early 1974. And uh, and then Glenn came along, you know, and then we had the trademark sort of uh, lineup from there. You know, two guitars, bass, drums, and vocals. And, and we were always that, you know. We've always been that ever since. Uh, there's been other changes, mainly drummers over the years. Um, of course, Rob Bennett did his own thing in, um, oh, that, what was it, 90, 92, 93, when he went and did his own thing. Um, and then we had uh, Tim Ripper Owens, you know. Uh, great voice, great guy. Um, and, and uh, you know, I'm sure he's got a great future still in front of him, you know, because of that. But, um, but Rob started to make overtures that, you know, He'd sort of run his course with a solo thing, and he'd, he'd like to get back together. And we were thinking about the same time, but, but you know, very similar thoughts as well. And um, I mean, even Tim, he said it was a good idea that Rob came back to the band because Tim, I mean, we're all fans of the band, you know, and and Tim could see the sense in that. And uh, and Rob came back, and um, the rest is history. Tim's great, by the way. Tim, Tim's was, I mean, Scott was back with us, you know. And uh, it, it, it's just, I don't know, when, when Rob came back to us, it was just like, oh, put it on your favourite coach, you know. It was just so familiar, so so easy. And, uh, and of course, we've, we've been that way ever since. You really have. Now, uh, I'll just ask you this. You, you do have Andy in there, who, to me is one of the greatest producers uh, working right now, at least in the heavy metal genre. And you've got Richie, yeah. but we touched upon it. You had all the different drummers. You've had two, you know, the vocalists. And does it does it confuse things when you make changes or does it refresh things? Is it like, oh, look at that. That's that. Because, you know, the way Richie plays, for example, he's a monster and he's brought a, a, a new sort of brightness to the, to the older songs, not to put down Glenn or to put down KK, but... You know, it's like brushing with, you know, new colors. Um, how do you sort of you're, take you're that? You're absolutely right. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, Ken decided to, he wanted to retire and go off and do other things, you know, right before for the, epi, the Epitaph Tour. I mean, the whole idea with the Epitaph Tour was to to slow down after that, you know. Not quick, you know, we, we couldn't do that, you know, to know our genes to stop. But just to slow down somewhat. And... Uh, and of course, uh, right before that tour, Ken decides he wants to he wants to retire, you know. And uh, Richie comes in, and of course, we're talking eight years ago now, and he comes in with boundless energy and and you know endless enthusiasm. And by the end of the tour, we we were all you know ready to carry on, which is what we did, you know. So a, a lot of that decision to to keep it intense as it is, you know, is down to him really. Um, and of course, with, with, with Andy, uh, Glenn, he, he got ill with Parkinson's disease, and um, he'd actually been diagnosed the two before this one. And uh, when we were running through, um, you know, band rehearsals before the before the two, we get together and we kick around the songs. I mean, when he started out, he, he was he was very very rough, you know. But as the week went on, he just got better and better and better. So. To the point where he was giving tremendous performances on the last tour, and we were kind of hoping that the same thing was going to happen this time round. But after the first week, you know, we had to admit that um, that it wasn't going to happen, and uh, Glenn had to admit it to himself more than anything, you know. And uh, Andy just happened to be in the studio. We brought down some backing tapes uh, for one thing or another, 
and there he was, you know, the perfect stone. <laughs> he was familiar with all the new songs because he just produced them, you know. And uh, you, you know when you're trying to learn a song, if you know the song beforehand, it's a hell of a lot easier than, than trying to learn something that's totally unfamiliar. And, of course, Andy um, has been a fan of the band as well. So the old material was sort of familiar to him too, and he's a great guitarist. So um, he, he's the perfect fit. And he pulled out a real rabbit in, from the half, really. Uh, I mean, in, in just three weeks, we got a complete set list of, um, of songs together. You know, he pulled out uh, a tremendous job there. He really did. Yeah, and and I'm sort of torn on on whether I want him to stay with you or not. Because on on one hand, he adds a great element to the band, Andy. But on the other hand, he he's not yeah. producing the new Accept record. He's not producing the new. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I kind of like when he produces. So so hopefully he'll stay with you, and hopefully he'll produce some more albums with you. Hopefully you're not done. Um, I know we're running out of time. Yeah. We said 50 minutes, but let me just ask you this because we mentioned Ken and Kenneth. Um, there has been some sniping back and forth in the press, and there has been the book, and well, okay, you know, that's that's part of the business, but you have known him since the, the late 60s. Is there still, uh, you know, a place in your heart for him? I mean, are you still friends? Can you still phone him up and say, hey, and, and go for a beer? Or has it gotten to the point where it's done, we're, we've moved on? Because it's, you know, you're looking at 50 years of history. You, is it easy to walk away, or have you walked away, or can you still be friends? Musically, um, with the party company, really, I'm sure if I called him up and said, if I cover down a pub, he'd say yes. I'm sure I know he would. Of course, okay. Although I haven't had much contact with him over the last couple of years, uh, because we've been so busy, you know. Um, but uh, I, I think musically, we've, we've parted ways, really, you know, and probably the, the less said, the better. I'll get slighted on blabbermouth, probably, for saying anything, so I've got to be careful. <laughs> yeah, you got to be careful. But it, anyway, it, listen, what you created, all of you together, including with Tim, and has been absolutely masterful. Um, and then just real quick, I'll, I'll finish with this, because we know we have the Uriah Heap tour. I will be out in Albany. I'll be watching both shows. But you were going to do some shows with Ozzy. It's been put off to 2020. Uh, just talk to me a little bit about that and, uh, you know, Ozzy's health and, and 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 just getting everybody getting a little bit older. Is that something you think about, that maybe we're getting to our last tours, we're getting to the last moments, maybe these shows may not happen just because of of time and not because of ill will, but just we're all getting to that stage where we don't know what tomorrow brings. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, none of us are stupid, you know. We, we see ourselves in the middle every morning. <laughs> we know things aren't exactly the way they were 50 years ago. Uh, so, yeah, it, it is, I'm sure it's in the back of uh, at least Rob's mind and my mind, you know, that um, sooner or later your body's going to give out. Uh, fortunately, at the moment, we're all in pretty good health and we're, we're comparatively fit and able to put on quality performances, you know. And as long as we can continue to do that, put on a quality performance, uh, we'll continue to do so. And as long as the fans accept us, you know, there's no uh, no plan to, to stop just yet. Um, and we'll just keep on going for as long as we can. Good. And uh, just remind folks, the uh, tour starts in Hollywood, Florida on May 3rd. And uh, Ian, absolute pleasure. I will see you in Albany. And thank you. Always a pleasure. Okay. It's been, it's been a pleasure, Mitch. Anytime. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. See you in a couple okay, of bye weeks. Bye-bye now. Yes, you will. Bye. Bye. 
You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. Big thank you to Ian Hill of Judas Priest. I will be seeing them in Albany on both May 18th and May 19th. Very much looking forward to that. We are back with not one, but two co-hosts today. We've got Claudio Bergman, who of course did the artwork for Judas Priest, Firepower, and my logo, and the affable KISS fan, Alan Niven. <laughs> right, Alan? You're, you're... Oh, absolutely affable. <laughs> I'm going to keep hitting you on Anyway, uh, but real quick, we are going to talk with music industry veteran Dorothy Carvello. Her new book, or her book, is Anything for a Hit, an A&R, an A&R woman's story of surviving the music industry. She talks about all kinds of... Well, I don't want to say wonderful things. It's a, it's a lot of really horrible things, quite frankly, about how women are treated in the corporate structure in the music industry. Uh, Alan, you joined me for the interview because you had a chance to work with her, I guess, back in the day. Just uh, quickly talk to me about, about Dorothy. And, and uh, there's not too much of a setup because you were on the interview as well. With, with Dorothy, uh, we didn't work together, but she was... Um a very smart and ambitious girl, um, very capable of what she was doing. And one of the things that she made sure of was to reach out to managers who were doing well with their bands and form some sort of relationship. And I liked her on a professional level. Um, I thought she had some moxie. I thought she had good ideas about music. And uh, we would have... Tea and cucumber sandwiches at um, the Peninsula Hotel every now and then, or if I was in New York, we might go out for a lunch. Um, always very straight. I was always very straight with the women I dealt with back in the day, and I had an absolute rule about the girls who worked for me that no one was going to dip their pen in the company ink, and I lived by the rule you don't screw the help. Yes. Uh, Claudio, I, I know I know you got to get to a gig. We can hear it in the background, but just real quick. Um, the, the music business was a bit tough on females or is. Uh, in the art world, have you noticed anything similar or, or are men and women reasonably treated equally in, in your sort of sphere? Uh, you mean as far as uh, professional collaboration? Yeah, as far as being uh, seen as equals, not being seen as sexual objects or somebody that you can just take advantage of or somebody that should just go get you your coffee, all, all that sort of typical sexist kind of point no, of view. Well, that, um, I would have to say no, because uh, I collaborate with a lot of women in what I do. In fact, when I was working in London in this advertising agency, half of the staff were women and very talented artists. So I, I don't think it has ever been an issue in my, in my experience. And uh, it may, may, maybe because art is something that requires a lot of intuition and sensitivity. And, and women are good at that. You know, they are very, when, when they put their mind into artwork, they're extremely talented and they arrive to solutions that most guys don't. You know, that's my experience. So I would, I would have to say no. I would say it's very equal. And um, yeah. 
It really was. Uh, Alan, do you think that do you think the music industry back in the 80s and 90s lacked sensitivity? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, yes, think. Yeah. Um, oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's, there's a guy called Bob Lesset who um, usually has a really good uh, point of view on matters of rock and roll, but. You know, after the dirt thing, he wrote a piece saying, you know, basically, I was there, it was the way it was, and an undertone I got from him, maybe fairly, maybe not, was the girls were asking for it. Um, and, yeah, there was, there was definitely a case of sex and drugs and rock and roll and people wanting to party and have fun. But on the other hand, some women were treated really, really badly, and sometimes with tragic consequence. Um, you know, it's it's really simple. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Be a decent man. You know, have yeah. some manners. Don't abuse people. Um, really straightforward. It's not rocket science. It really is. And uh, since we discussed it with uh, Dorothy, let's get over to her. Um, she was, uh, by the way, she was involved with, with Motley Crue too, right? Uh, she was working at Atlantic, so um, she was uh, around Skid Row. I think she had a prominent part in getting Skid Row signed. Uh, and if I remember correctly, Ahmed Ertegun was so appalled at the band when he saw them, um, he actually grabbed her arm and broke it. He was oh, so angry. That's right. We, we we discussed that story. So let's let's in fact let's just get over yeah. to her stories. Let's, here let's is, hear it from Dorothy. Let's hear it from the girl herself. Here is the one, the only Dorothy Carvello. We are speaking with Dorothy Carvello. The new book is Anything for a Hit, an A and R woman's story of surviving the music industry. Uh, good day, Dorothy. Pleasure to speak with you. Pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And I'll just uh, quickly tell the listeners, normally we don't have uh, co-host Alan Niven on with us, but today we do. Good day, Alan. Welcome to to an interview. Well, thank you for having me on, guys. And uh, I'm sending my... Uh, um their cool greetings today because the temperatures are dropping, but <laughs> greetings from Arizona. Yes. And, and what's interesting is that Alan shows up at least twice that I could find uh, in the book. But, uh, Dorothy, let me let, let me talk to you about this, because, you know, we, we are in this era of the Me Too movement. And, we, you know, we see R. Kelly being taken off to jail and stuff like that. And, and a lot of the stuff that's going on now seem to be sort of regular every it's basically Monday in your book. Right. I mean, uh, um, yes, this, this behavior was regular everyday behavior in publicly traded corporations. Uh, the only difference is now the women have, um, a, a platform because of social media and because of the beginning of the me too movement to actually speak about it. Uh, when it was happening to me, I always spoke about it and brought it up to my superiors. Uh, they just fired you because they did not care. And the whole culture of the music business is all about uh, the men achieving their wealth, their status, and their egos being satisfied. And just women were just treated despicably. Illegally and immorally, but again, since it's a male-dominated business, nobody cares. 
it really it really was it, it it was i mean the book is something that i i, I recommend everybody reads because it's it's a sordid tale of of just an incredible amount of abuse but before we get into the nitty-gritty let me dial it back here because right at the beginning you said that you are on a on a subway commute and you daydreamed of being a rich and powerful music executive so what was it that attracted you to to the sort of behind the scenes? Why not be sort of the next Joan Jett or the next Lita Ford or the next Aretha Franklin? What was it that you thought about in terms of going into corporate America and being on that side of, of the music equation? Well, I can't sing. I mean, that, <laughs> that kind of limits you. I had really no musical talent. I loved music, though, obviously. I related to it. And I had just graduated college, so the only avenue that seemed the best way to get into it was through the corporate level. And what I didn't realize, I just assumed that if you had a college degree, you could walk in off the street and get a, you know, at least an entry-level job. But when I met Ahmed Erdogan, you know, he dissuaded me of that, uh, that, you know, he said if women have to start at the bottom. And they did. And any woman that started there that had higher education really started as a secretary some, somewhere along the way in Atlantic Records, So, which out of every single uh, label was the premier worst offender uh, for abuse out of any company. Out of any. Sure. So oh, so let me talk about getting your foot in the door. I, I mean, it really was you had to know somebody, right? You had Peter Abadie. Or Correct. Abadie. Uh, so talk to me about or or be related to somebody. Um, Correct. I think I think Dorothy and I both know somebody who had um, an easier and more protected path, and that would be Michelle Anthony. And I've got to say, Dorothy, that you know, and and in all transparency to everybody listening, um, Dorothy and I used to cross paths uh, every now and then back in the day, and. I found her to be very astute, very smart, um, very good at what she did. And I used to hear some of these stories back then. And I have to say that I think you were brave to endure and you were brave to speak out. Well, thank you so much, Alan. I appreciate that. You know, I tried for many, many years to have this book published um, and I was unsuccessful at it. But again, I was undaunted and knew that a time would come. And I did have my book deal and my book was written before the Me Too movement. Um, and they held it for a year before publishing it. But all's well that ends well. So let me get back to to uh, to the story here. You're you're working with and and pronounce I'll help, help me with the pronunciation, but Ahmet Erdogan. And yeah. you're, you're his secretary or you were at the beginning. Yeah. Um, yeah. Talk to me about you, you see this stuff going on and you see, you know, and well, we'll use the language, the blowjobs and the young girls and the drugs. And um, how difficult was it for you to close your eyes and just say, OK, I've got to focus here. I, I have a job and I have uh, career aspirations. What Was it something that sort of ate at you psychologically or you just went, hey, that's the game. Well, we just got to go along with it. Yeah. He- 
here, here's, it's twofold. I originally wanted to be an FBI agent because I only saw the world in two ways, good and evil, which is a naive way when you're young. That's how most people see the world. I loved music and I had to work at a place for two years before I could enter the Quantico Academy. When I met Ahmed Erdogan, and this happens to many people, and even in the FBI when they work cases, when you meet a sociopath and a criminal, a master criminal mind such as his, you become attracted to that because he broke every single rule in the book. And I came from, um, you know, not a great family life. I went to Catholic school. So every single natural urge that a woman or a man would have is against anything in the Catholic religion. You know, they give you this false view that everything you have to be like Jesus Christ, which is impossible, <laughs> you know, for anybody. So I meet Ahmed Erdogan, who's breaking all these rules. And as all this was happening, the drugs, the hookers, the mistresses, the girlfriends, you're just in this whirlwind of activity of a 12 hour day with 30 minutes for lunch. And my life was his life. So there is a blending of morality, which I went along with because, you know, I was getting something out of it also. I was getting access. I'm meeting, you know, Robert Plant, Jimmy Page, Mick Jagger. Uh, sometimes I'm going to parties. You know, he's getting me laid. So I had something to benefit too. And by being exposed to him was going to be my ticket for a promotion. Because I figured if Ahmed Erdogan couldn't promote me, who else is going to do it? However, you know, things become normalized. The way that these men functioned on drugs pretty much every day, at least Ahmed, that just became part of my job. And I didn't realize it until I got out of Atlantic and eventually years later went to other labels, even though the men acted crazy, it wasn't on this level of debauchery. Like... Ahmed Erdogan himself was like a rock and roll band, you know, what uh, was like Motley Crue in the heyday. Just himself alone, the level of people that it took for him to do like one thing, you know, there were like 12 people enabling this guy. The whole Atlantic Records was a whole front to enable him to do whatever he wanted. And he did it. Nobody told him he couldn't do it. It's almost like when you see the Michael Jackson documentary, the R. Kelly, all these people enabled, myself included. And I didn't realize the effect it was having on me till years later, you know, with my own anger management issues. You know, when I started to have to hit people to get their attention, it just I was, you know, disintegrating. But I, I didn't have the wisdom or maturity at the time because I only saw the end result, signing bands, signing bands. But these men also, they desensitize you to everyday life, to caring. They desensitize you to sex. Sex was just something that, you know, I would have to have in between during the day going to a band. So it's like I, I became like them. And that's not really who I was. And as a female in the music business, can't pull off that level of insanity. It just doesn't work. People say you're crazy. You know, you should apologize. That's not how women behave. But the men get away with it. 
They really do. Okay, so let me. You mentioned hitting here. So, so let me talk to you about a band, Skid Row. Now, I I talk to mm-hmm. to the guys uh, almost regularly. I you know email Rachel and stuff all the time. Uh, there's a point in the book where you said that uh, Erdogan grabbed your arm so uh, forcefully that it broke uh, after a performance. Uh, yeah, he fractured. Yes, he right. fractured my forearm. After a performance of Skid Row, you had just signed them, and and you correct me where I'm wrong here, but the, the performance wasn't what it should have been, and he was angry. Uh, and then after that, there's there's no lawsuit, there's no excuse, there's there's no bouquet of flowers, or at least not, not that I read. No. Um, it, it was it was very much just that's business as usual. Oh, I broke her girl a girl's arm, or I broke a, a, an employee's arm. Yeah, so what? Correct. Uh, Talk to me about that incident and, and also the Skid Row guys, because I do have a personal connection to them. And, I, and I'm very interested in how you had an arm, how, not an arm, but how you had a, 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 a moment there to sign them. Because you, you hear about Jason Flom and you hear about all this stuff. Tell me a little bit about the, the Skid Row story. Well, the Skid Row story was Jason heard about this band that uh, was going to be opening for Bon Jovi out of New Jersey and that snake and John were childhood friends. And he heard about it in a, in, um, through somebody that worked in doc McGee's office. So I saw this as an opportunity for me to get out of being on the secretary and help Jason find this band. Cause he really didn't know what to do. And the way, because the band was already in, um, they had paperwork and was being signed by Geffen. Um, it was a twofold thing to get Ahmed to go see the band and get, because he hated David Geffen to compete, you know, use his ego to, uh, get him to be envious of David Geffen, which he was already. And because I had that constant, I had everyday access to Ahmed to get him hyped up. And then on the other side, I, I was dating John Kladner who worked for Geffen and he was telling me everything Kevin was doing, saying, look, if you, you know, he was like, I'm going to help you sign this band, which he did. Because, look, a lot of guys in the music business are like, you know, let's hook up, let's have sex, and I'll help your career. They stay it straight out, and then they never do. So to his credit, he did help me. And and then, of course, I wasn't in A&R, so Jason would naturally get the credit for signing. But... I did get put into A&R once we signed, uh, officially signed Skid Row and did get to work with them. So, And I spoke to Snake last night. He called me. Uh, let me just ask you one thing, and then, Alan, I'll get to you for a second. But talk to me a little bit about the competition back then between Atlantic and Geffen. Because Geffen, of course, at the time has White Snake that that with the 87 album that just off the charts. Uh, Aerosmith, Permanent yeah. Vacation, off the charts. Um because uh, I, I see in the book that you thank and reference Tim Collins, who of course worked with Aerosmith. Was there a lot of sort of subterfuge and, and a lot of sinking other people's bands? And and you, you know, were you trying to steal those bands? Because you're 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 going out with gun without well, not going out, but you're you're meeting with Alan Niven. You're you're meeting with with Tim. Um, was there a plan to sort of say, hey, we got to steal these guys? Because literally, no, you can't steal them because they're under contract for years and years. So oh. it would be impossible. But these were the big, the, Alan Niven, Guns N' Roses, Jim Collins, and Alan Smith. They had the biggest tours. And in those days, and you needed to have your artist on a big tour. 
these big rock band tours, White Snake, you had to have opening slots in order to get these bands like Skid Row and White Lion to get them to break even bigger. So you, those were the managers at the time that had the biggest tours, were doing the biggest business. So you got to know them. So they would, in the hopes of, you know, not just friendship and to do business if they got other bands to sign, there was no way you could get a Guns N' Roses or an Aerosmith that were locked down on the contract, you know, contract. But these were the guys, you know, doing the biggest business. They were the guys to know. And, um, you know, it was a lot of fun when the bands did go out with them, when the Atlantic bands did get certain legs of the tour. You know, we had a lot of fun going on the road. And um, it was great. It was one was of the best of parts of the job, actually. Alan. There was a lot of, comp- lot of competition between Ahmed and David Geffen. Um, yeah. As, as I recall, um, David had been something of a protege of Ahmed's. And yeah. uh, for various reasons, you know, extremely competitive and highly driven individuals. Um, obviously, there was a parting of the ways at some point. Um, but one of my favorite stories out of the book, um, and, and a lot of, uh, there's so much in that book that you go, yeah, I knew that was going on, and you just feel bad about it. But there was one story that I thought was absolutely classic, was that uh, I believe you were asked to dictate a letter from Ahmed to David. And yes. Ahmed starts to form the letter, and you look at him and say, do you really want to say that? You've got to tell that story. Yeah. So, well, you know, he would always say, take a letter. And then I would have to take dictation, which I was horrible at. But he spoke so slow, I could handwrite it and then type it up. So when he something happened with David Geffen, they got in a fight over a painting or something. So he sits down and he dictates and he says, dear fucker. So I knew right away it was going to Geffen. <laughs> So I said, you sure you want to put this in the letter? And he says, yes. And, you know, he would always have choice words for him, like, you know, just um, crazy about it would just drive him crazy. But Atlanta could never compete with Geffen Records because they didn't spend any money. You know, the philosophy of Doug Morris was to sign 10 bands, put them all out at one time. And if one of them popped its head up, that's where the company would put the money. David Geffen would have budgets of, if he signed a band, he'd pay upwards to $250,000. Our budgets were never more than $150,000, $75,000, 100000 You know, if you got one seventy-five out of Doug Morris, it was a miracle. Doug once famously said the artists were like pebbles on a beach. Yeah, well, there you yeah. go. Yeah. There you go. There you um, go. Just real quick, when you, when you finally get promoted and become the A&R person. Did, yeah. did you have any illusions or that, that everything was going to end and now you're in a, you know, now you're the power broker. Now you're in charge. Now you're on top and you know, you're in control or was it just more of, well, okay, I've got a new title, but we still got to sort of saddle up and, you know, got to put up with the people ordering the, the dildos to the office and, and the, the making people sign papers while they're getting blowjobs. I mean, it, it it really is sort of like a Salvador Dali kind of. I mean, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling to read this because as a fan myself at the time, you know, I'd go to a, a Whitesnake show or I'd go to a... 
I didn't know all of this was going on, and I might have seen it very differently had I known sort of, and I don't want to sound dramatic, but the suffering going on to make these bands and shows and things happen. Well, many people, the people in the executive wing of Atlantic knew everything. You know, there were people that worked in the company that like Amit just, he called everyone in the company peasants. Everyone was his peasants. He never spoke to anybody, but we were separated in another area of the building from everyone. Um, So what happened is when I got promoted, I thought I cured cancer. It was going to be the greatest. And I thought everyone was going to treat me differently, but they didn't. Um, I got demoted back to Ahmed's secretary to work on the 40th anniversary. Um, I couldn't work with Skid Row anymore for like four months. I had to take care of Ahmed while they were in the studio recording their first record. Um, They just, the way Ahmed and Doug ran the place, you know, it wasn't going to happen for the women. They just treated you like a second class citizen. The assistants were treated poorly. Um, there just wasn't any respect. You know, we had one executive punch his secretary in the face because he was high as a kite. You know, she had to be taken out by an ambulance. The men were just not disciplined. The promotion department did whatever they want. Um, there was just no, um, it was like a free-for-all. It was a freak show. And that's, you thought it was going to stop, but it just didn't. And after years of being there, uh, it just wears you out mentally. And you get, for me, you know, I used to just remember yelling and screaming. I was imitating their behavior and it really took a personal toll on me. And, you know, people couldn't stand being around me. They were like, you know, she's so rough. She's so tough. But literally to walk down the hallway, the men were like octopuses. They would just grab your breasts. They grab you between your legs. And if I have Ahmed Erdogan doing that to me, on a daily basis, why shouldn't some guy in the promotion department, he's doing it. You know, the tone is set at the top of the company. If the man is running the company that has no respect for people on a human level and could care less. I mean, I remember the head of sales died. He didn't even want to go to the guy's funeral. He's like, why do I got to go to his funeral? There were 15 people in there screaming at him saying, how's it going to look if the chairman of the company doesn't go to the head of sales funeral? He didn't even, he was that disconnected emotionally from people that, you know, we were just there to serve him like he was the sultan and the king. And that's what he, that's what he thought. And that's the way he acted. The only time he behaved for two seconds semi-normally was with an artist. And then he would just bring it right down to the lowest level of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You know, he posed for a photo and then he was like ripping you know, let's go out here to this strip club, to that strip club, call this hooker, you know, all crazy shit. Wow. And he went nuts when um, Jimmy Page went to rehab. He almost had a nervous breakdown because <laughs> he thought instead of helping Jimmy Page, he thought it was going to ruin his career. Well, I, I, I can uh, I can certainly understand that. And I know there, there was that same resistance <laughs> when they tried to get Aerosmith to be uh, fully clean. Uh, Alan, do you have something to say before I get my next question out? Yes, I do. Okay. Um, I think I think from my personal observation, I think Dorothy, Dorothy suffered a particularly um, bad environment. That said, 
It was not a unique environment. I mean, I remember famously there was a, a head of promotion at Capital who used to chase uh, his staff around with a cattle prod. Oh, God. An electric cattle prod. Um, oh, my God. I kind of thought that, that my time uh, in the 80s there, I'd, I'm, I may have seen it wrong, um, I may have been mistaken, but I thought we were going through a slightly transitional period where there was going to be uh, a little more intelligence and a little more sensitivity um, coming into the business. But, you know, believe you me, um, there was all kinds of shenanigans going on. Every, every label, you know, for me, it was always the same man. Just they looked different, but, you know, they all had the same personality type, extreme narcissism. And, uh, you know, and also uh, just a abuse of power. There's no other way to describe it. Abuse of power. Yeah, it really um, is. I, I got a, uh, I'll add this, I, I got a, uh, an email um, the other night from Stephanie Brownstein. And she wanted to pass on her really warmest regards and she had nothing but good and fond memories of you. But it was interesting to me that she added to the email, thank you for protecting me back then. Um, yeah, no, Alan, I have to say, you're always a gentleman. Not one vulgar thing ever, nothing. So, oh, well, bless your you heart know. for remembering that. Yes. Let, let, me, let me ask you this real quick, just, to, just to, to sort of step out of the book for a second. You know, the music industry has gone through a lot of changes from, uh, you know, the CD disappearing pretty much, vinyl coming back, streaming, you know, Spotify, uh, shows like this, podcasting. Right. As an A&R person and as somebody who was an expert in the field, what would you tell a new band? You know, I'm, I'm 18 years old, 19 years old. I want to start a band. How do I do that in 2019? What, what's sort of your best advice? Well, my best advice and what I know from dealing and speaking with all the men running the companies now is they're going by data. It's not like when I was A&R person. You'd hear about a band in a city. You'd go see them. They played out constantly. Everything now is data. It's either YouTube, SoundCloud, you know, uh, anything on a streaming services. That's how they're signing bands from every single label head that I speak to. That's the way they're doing it. So it's a completely different business in terms which, which of how is, they're looking for talent. Which to me is dreadful because back in the day, Dorothy would uh, exercise her judgment and taste. Um, Tom Zutout would exercise his judgment and taste. I would exercise my judgment and taste. And if we were dealing on data back then, uh, I'd point out that every single band that I worked with pretty much um, from top to bottom, nobody wanted. They wouldn't have had right. what we would have described as data. It was just a case of I personally saw something that connected to me personally. And there used to be this old statement that they'd make in the, uh, in the day, oh, somebody has great ears. And I'd look at right. them and go, you're completely out of your mind. I don't have great ears. I have very average ears. If, some, if I like something, I think a lot of people will. Right, which is Bye. true. Uh, and then, so let me ask you this, and I'll and I'll throw it to both of you, and and we'll you know we'll wrap up after that. But uh, is the album as a concept, you know, twelve songs, ten songs, 12, 
is that concept dead for for a new artist? Should should a new guy or a new band focus on one single, take a couple of months, one single, take a couple of months in terms of the product and the delivery method of the product and to sound business like um what would you recommend new bands well you know is our albums done are we done with that concept of you need 12 songs I don't, you know i don't think so i mean like atlantic records for instance today you know when they, they lead off with the hit like let's take cardi b for instance and then they can't wait to do a whole album with us so i don't think the concept is done you know again Remember, A&R people by nature are lazy and have a sheet mentality, so they just follow whatever the trend is. That's what feels safest and is, you know, people have a false sense of security. They could keep their job that way. But, you know, again, they're on this data kick, which I agree with Alan isn't right. But, you know, the companies are making money now for the first time in a really long time. Big money, like back the way it was in the 80s with the boom of the CD. Uh, due to streaming now so you know again they'll get a little fat they'll get a little lazy but again the cream rises to the top always so if you make good music that's what you should be doing making good music and you know don't conform to what you think everybody else has what is different is what always makes it that is uh, sound advice Uh, alan uh, uh, final words well as, as regards your question mitch I'll make a simple observation. Um, the last time I was in Walmart, um, I noticed, up on the hill, I noticed, um, which is a mega Walmart, I noticed a huge pile of cheap uh, record players, and I saw that they had more vinyl in Walmart than they did CDs, which I found very interesting. I don't think the album, as a form of self-expression, uh, is completely done. I just think that we'd, we'd be smart to, and we've done this with Buck and Evans, we'd, we'd be smart to learn from history and go back to the late 50s, early 60s, where uh, the definition of an album was a collection of singles, um, and learn from that and go, put a single out, put another single out, put a third single out, before you put a record out because things come and go very quickly these days and half the art i think of developing somebody is keeping people interested which means that you have to keep hitting social media yeah and i, I actually like yeah. uh, what john five of uh, rob zombies band is doing he has um, one song on the first of every month coming out and at the end of the year after 12 months he will collect them and then throw that on on an album so the album doesn't exist right now for the fans. You get one a month, and then, you know, by Christmas time, it'll be like, ah, oh, now we can sort of bundle them up. And so I think that's an interesting concept, you know, with the YouTube and all that. But, uh, Dorothy, an absolute pleasure. The book, I will remind folks, is anything for a hit, an A&R woman's story of surviving the music industry. It is an absolute, absolute must read. It is certainly nice to read biographies of all our favorite bands. But I think sometimes you need a little more, a little more interest, a little more depth to to the um, to the lecture, to the reading, and uh, this provides it. And uh, I'm glad I was able to it's reconnect. Yeah, and I'm glad I was able to reconnect Alan and and Dorothy. And uh, there you go, merci, thank you, as we say. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And Alan, I will talk to you soon. 
Uh, absolutely. Um... This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. 